<laughs> uh, you, you've uh, kept, kept with a nice mix of films again this year, of course. Um, and uh, you started off with Stand By Me. What, yeah. why, why that one particularly? Was it a particular, a particular, particular favourite to start the season? You know, it seems to me there was a particular reason why that seemed like a good choice. Um, although I can't remember why it was. I think that was my choice, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, and I think I just thought, you know, wonderful film and so memorable. And uh, those kids all give such a great performance. So, and uh, but it's the story. It's it's that story and, and all the nostalgia in it. Especially yep. on a Stephen King short story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and there's uh, just so many up-and-coming actors in that. You know, Will Wheaton was on that just before he got his gig on Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, it it seems that each season that we go by, we try to include a little bit more nostalgia from a certain period. So, of course, um, you know, when we started this journey three years ago, we, uh, you know, tipped our hats off with the 60s, with Barbarella. But of course, now we're catching up. We're not quite in the you know the 2010s just yet. But uh, Stand by Me was a good uh, sample of the 80s. Yeah, <clears throat> and also, um, yeah, folks should know we don't start the year out by planning the entire schedule of movies. Um, we we kind of a- as we finish an episode we. One of us will have something in mind for the next time, but I don't think either of us have anything in mind for like five episodes down the line or anything like that. So it's kind of like we do an episode and then we decide what's the next movie. So we don't we don't plan it out a year in advance, a season in advance. And um, the next the next uh, well, it was a, a TV show you covered next. Um, this is not one I, I really know anything about. I, I don't even know if it was shown over here. It may have been, I might have just missed it, but um, Step by Step from 1991, an ABC comedy um, with Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers. The only thing I know about Susan Summers is years ago, a friend of mine who liked to buy me weird birthday presents bought me, uh, because it was particularly around the time I was performing my poetry a lot, um, he bought me a book of Suzanne Summers's poetry which um is is yeah it's quite unique and um uh yeah i'm not quite sure when it was written so that's i i, I didn't know much about her um i think he just thought that well that looks like a particularly weird sort of poetry related uh, uh you know curio to get me for, as a birthday present <laughs> well to be honest with you she had one main claim to fame which was she was on a very successful sitcom called three's company and uh, as I recall, she was written out because she wanted more money or there was some kind of contract dispute. Or she probably, as a woman, just stood up for herself and said, no, I'm not going to take less money than John Ritter just because I'm a woman. And they probably said, oh, well, then bye. <laughs> um, I think that's what happened. Anyways... Uh, after that, she possibly was in a couple made-for-TV movies. And then her other main claim to fame is that she's sold stuff on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Including, um, you know, uh, as as Paul was talking about the poetry, she's had several books. It's usually about lifestyle, things like diet and exercise. But 
Um, you know, Step by or um, Three's Company was actually a remake of a, a original British series, Man of the House, which mm, I've been tracked down. But um, yeah, I know about that. And, and also, there was a spin-off um, f- from that 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 uh, um, George and Mildred, which who were the, who were characters who were like the landlords of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had yeah, that, that sort of covered the whole of the seventies, I think, in different right. in, in the two different f- versions. I was thinking um, that uh, I've just checked my facts, but because uh, Patrick Duffy, um, it looks like Dallas finished in nineteen ninety one. So I don't know if this was the full season. That um, this is if this is what he did as soon as he left Dallas. I, I, that's if he was still in Dallas right at the final season. I'm, I I lose track of it. But uh, yeah, he he was okay. Yeah. I was just I'm a little bit fuzzy on his coming and going because of course we had mm-hmm. you know a whole uh, year or so where yeah. it was dream season. If you you know yeah. like your nostalgia, but um, that's <laughs> that's probably the main reason why we want to look into step by step because it was a long running sitcom and it was also uh Suzanne Summers' chance to sort of prove herself because everybody knows that she, you know she had that that near miss on Three's Company and she tried to pick herself up and dust herself off but it took a while before she would get callbacks for her audition so of course, she eventually landed on step by step with, uh, you know, someone who you could probably couldn't ask for a better co-star is uh, Mr. Patrick Duffy. And step by step, actually, believe it or not, ran seven seasons. So, right. you know, it blows, blows my mind. I cannot <laughs> believe it. And it was part of a landmark period in American television because in the 90s, we had this whole phenomenon where. We believed that everyone was glued to their TVs on Friday night, and they called it TGI Friday. And uh, Step by Step was part of that lineup with other shows like um, Family Matters and Perfect Strangers. And, you know, um, I I mostly was curious to, to revisit Step by Step because I had only seen a handful of episodes, and I don't even think it was during its initial run. So I, like Toppy, was a little bit perplexed by the fact that this show lasted seven seasons. I, I can't believe it. I uh, I just can't. I, it, it, just, it just doesn't seem to me it was that good. I do remember that at, at the beginning they seemed to want to focus on their two stars, but really quite quickly the focus shifted to the children and almost all the episodes revolve around the kid the one of them in school because they're all different ages one's in college one's in high school blah 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 and who they're dating and what they're doing in school and it's it's very much about the kids and really uh, the the mother and father duffy and summers they kind of take a backseat role for the rest of the series i have no idea if that was planned or I don't know. It looks like it. I was looking to see if it's, if it was possible, uh, if it did possibly sell to the UK, but what I can see is that it, it was definitely shown in Australia, but uh, mm-hmm. um, no mention of the UK. So I yeah. might explain why I'd, it's not one I'd, I'd heard about. Um, also, so, I, I would never say Patrick Duffy is a great actor by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> He's really bad. In, in, the, in the sitcom, he's well, really bad. Right. 
you know, the, there's a difference between a, receiving a daytime Emmy and an Oscar for drama. But he showed up every day and punched the time clock. So, you know, he ke- he kept Suzanne Summers' paycheck coming anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, the show mystifies me. Mystifies me. It, it wasn't set on Atlantis, though. He didn't have to run around swimming with his top off the whole show. No. <laughs> uh, so um, your next episode was your Halloween episode. This was Hocus Pocus from 93. And um, you had a returning guest, Demanda Martini. Welcome to the beautiful, historical marionette theater. You're just in time for our Halloween show. It's going to be a spooky good time. Grab your seats. The show is about to begin. Max and Danny are two kids who've just moved to the spookiest town in the Commonwealth. At school, they learned the local legend of three sisters who were witches. Trying to impress a girl he met at a party, the teenage boy ends up triggering the return of the damned. Will they find their parents in time to get help? Will the witches figure out how to break the curse that will snuff them out again? Will little Danny score her favorite candies? Grab some salt, a broom, and your walking shoes. It's time for Hocus Pocus with Bette Midler. (laughs) So we have a special guest tonight. Oh, I will have to get the maintenance guy on that. Please put your hands together for the mysterious and fabulous magic, magical Jamanda Martini. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Toppy. Hi, DJ. Hello. So, So happy to be back. So welcome. So wonderful to have you back. Welcome back to the marionette, Amanda. I, I hope that we got all those green M&Ms out uh, for you this time. Yes, but next time, Skittles. Skittles are better. Oh. And- <laughs> <laughs> Taste the rainbow. Yo, most yeah. definitely. Most definitely. So tonight we are talking about the early 90s uh, comedy fantasy Hocus Pocus. And uh, as our guest of the hour told you, it uh, starred Bette Midler and Kathy Najimy. And Sarah Jessica Parker. They all got top billing. They sure did. <laughs> And um, I, I think I only saw Hocus Pocus for the first time a, about a year or two ago. So uh, I would have, you know, I, I recognized it when you talked about it. But I, I had you done it a couple of, perhaps if you'd done it in season one, I wouldn't have, have, have known it. But uh, um, um, uh, who's, uh, whose choice was this? <laughs> well, I'll give you a hit with the uh, the lead in there. But I would say that it's probably fair to guess that this was, was this your first time seeing this topic? By the way, yes, my choice. <laughs> yeah, uh, DJ really wanted to do it, and I thought, you know, it's perfect. It, one of the things we were still doing at that time is because of COVID and just everything seems so serious and heavy, and we kind of stuck with light material, um, which I think was wise, given 
that year of COVID. And and Hocus Pocus seemed like a, a fun Halloween movie. And no, I'd never seen it, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, 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 I'd not um, until quite recently. 93, I was at university and um, probably... You know, with that, that's, I, I guess it. I, I guess it was sort of in the cinemas over here as well around that time. But uh, I think I had to pick which films I went to see um, back then, just for sort of. Um, you know, of course, all my all my money was going on books for studying. Yeah, not records or or, or videos. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> I I didn't see it in the theater when it originally came out because I'm the youngest of four, so we didn't get to the the cinema that often. But um, you know, with the cast, it wasn't something that I was going to miss out on because I mean, Bette Medler and Kathy Najimy. Now, number one, of course, I had seen Kathy Najimy in the, the Sister Act films, and you know, she was easily my favorite in those. Because um, they evoked such a nostalgia for the original, I, I call them the nun movies, that had Haley Mills in them. They were um, The Trouble with Angels and Where Angels Go, Trouble Follows, with Rosalind Russell as the, uh, not quite the mother superior, but, you know, the, the, um, the, the senior teacher nun. And um, anyways, they, they did well with Kathy Najimy in this film because she was just the perfect comic relief. I think you summed it up best when you talked about Kathy uh, Najimy's character in Hocus Pocus Top. You remember what you told me, the reactions you had to the scenes with like when she lost her broom? Remember what she wrote on in the film? Yeah. <laughs> it it, it was ahead. the best. The vacuum cleaner, yeah. you know, so she's she's the comic relief because everybody else is trying to, um, you know, just carry out their duties, and she's just struggling to meet her sister's expectations. Because in Hocus Pocus, you've got three sisters. Bette Midler is the oldest. Kathy Najimy is possibly the middle child, and Sarah Jessica Parker is the pretty one, the young one. And Kathy Najimy, she just can't do anything right. <laughs> so, you know, she she ends up having to to, to ride in a um a uh, a vacuum cleaner when she loses her broom. <laughs> yeah. So one of the interesting things to me I, was that I noted that that there's never a scene where there's not the three of them. All three of them are always there. They never have a scene by themselves. It's always the three of them in every scene. Mm. I thought that was interesting. And yeah, it was just fun. And, uh, you know, it had pretty high budget for its production effects. And, you know, when they were riding the broom, it looked really good. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't really aware of, so Jessica Parker and Tales Sex in the City. So that sort of shows I just, you know, it's amazing how people can have these long careers, you know, already. And, and if you just don't watch the right films, you can completely miss the, um, the, 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 and then suddenly they come in into your, into your world and you think, 
oh, I wonder if they've got anything else. And oh, yeah, they've got loads. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget how miscast Sarah Jessica Parker was, in, in my opinion, in this action movie with Bruce Willis. It was, it was just like, no, this does not work at all. This is horrible. <laughs> It was it was one of the few Bruce Willis movies that wasn't a hit, and it was something like it all took. He was a, a I don't know he was a cop, but he was a cop on the water in a boat. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever that is. Uh, so uh, and and it was oh you know like he patrolled the harbor harbor patrol and some you know for some big city and it just was. And Sarah Jessica Parker was teamed up with them, and it just was like, eh, this is, this is bad. <laughs> now, your your next film, I, I, I'd not heard of until you talked about it. Um, My Fellow Americans from 1996 with Jack Lemmon and James Garner, which, um, yeah, I, 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 I uh, that's an interesting pairing. Uh, um. What, what what can you tell us about this one? Well, I'm pretty sure um, this was uh, DJ's idea, and I'm pretty sure didn't we do it because uh, of all the political stuff that was going on? You know, the election was coming, and all yeah. that jazz. Oh yeah, we we wanted to do our part and try to be patriotic, but at the same time, as Toppy was saying. You know, we wanted to add a little levity to the situation because you know, there was a lot of people who were not necessarily enjoying being at home or having to be distant from their friends and family. And my fellow Americans seemed to fit the bill because it did put you in the mentality of, you know, paying attention to politics. But these were clearly comical characters. I mean, you've got two former presidents who don't like each other. And it's a little bit like how um, President Clinton and President Bush ended up becoming friends later on in life. So, uh, you know, you also have some character actors in this that uh, are more of my, my father's generation's favorites. But a lot of what I enjoy is what I inherited from my early days of dead saying, oh, you know, I loved this actor in this movie. And I'm like, well, I've never seen him before, but this looks really good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the best feature about it was the two old pros who are in it, James Garner and Jack Lemmon. And uh, they can do little wrong in, in my and they worked well off of each other. Uh, and, and a lot way too much of the movie was about we're going to have these old men say dirty words. There was a little too much of that, like, oh, that's how we can make these guys funny, as if they swear a lot. So that that's really my only criticism, uh, is they laid into that a bit much. But I thought it was actually, um, DJ, I think one of my favorite movies we did in season three. Oh, I, you know, I think that the, the taste for the, you know, the, uh, Older men talking dirty might have been, uh, you know, sort of the flavor of the month at the time. Because I want to say that the grumpy old men movies might have been, you know, uh, around that time or, you know, just about to come around. They must have been around that same time. Yeah, because Jack Lemmon was also in uh, in those films. 
and it gave a lot of uh, you know um, talent that was in their later years a second chance to put out another good movie where they're working together. But I have to say, of all the lines in my fellow er, uh, my fellow Americans, the one that I just love to randomly quote. Okay, if you picture it. These two ex-presidents are on the run because they're being implicated in a scandal. And they're in a rental car sitting at a uh, fast food restaurant. And they've been mugged. They are trying to get by. They only have enough money for one cup of coffee. (laughs) Never mind the fact that the coffee was decaf and the other one didn't like that. But he offers him to share the coffee. He's like, you want to lick the lid? And he's like, Oh, sure. I'm going to share my coffee with the Washington love machine. You could spit in a Petri dish and start a whole civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll have to actually. um, So so obviously some of these episodes, uh, I've heard the episodes, but not yet seen the films. But the next uh, film in your list, which I believe is one of your your biggest downloads for the season if not the biggest download is alice's restaurant now did you not also do a watch party for this because i think in which case i think i i I have seen this one yeah we did do a watch party yeah this was around thanksgiving wasn't it? i think it was our first watch party uh if it wasn't our first it was one of the first i don't think we had done too many yeah oh you know i think i think we tried to do a watch party for Hocus Pocus. Hmm. Yeah, because I remember the, uh, the uh, it's based on a, um, a a song by Arlo Guthrie, and uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's one of those. It's it's probably his best known work. Uh, it's a very long song about a Thanksgiving day in this small town where they get into some trouble with the local law. And the movie expands on it and fleshes it out and uh, introduces many more characters. It, it's, I think, a fascinating movie. Um, I absolutely adore the way it was filmed. It was very, oh, um, um, I guess the name for it, the French gave it was... Uh, uh, film verite, where they they took the cameras and the sound equipment, and unlike most of what was being done, where it was finished off uh, in sound booths and on sets, and uh, a lot of dubbing, uh, this they took the camera and they got what they got. It was just a style that kind of broke out at that time and it was very anti anti hollywood all the young kids all the young directors were doing movies this way and it gave it a more real uh feel and that's that's alice's restaurant um and it's 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 a strange movie it's it's funny it's poignant and it's not all it's not all uh, a piece of cake uh, I guess that's what I remember thinking that you're, we're basically looking at a group of, of, of hippies uh, 
and they do drugs and they smoke marijuana and they drink a lot and they party and that seems to be the motivation for their lives is partying um now not partying like kids but adult partying and uh, not to mention, you know, a partner swapping and a little hanky-panky going on. And it decides to not just show it as, oh, isn't this the greatest lifestyle we've invented ever? It shows it a lot of it's really painful. I thought that was the most interesting thing about it. What was in the theaters that was competing against Alice's Restaurant? I'd like to actually give you a, a, a little clip here, a taste of the uh, the man behind the story of this film, Arlo Guthrie, a folk singer. And this is a brief moment with Tom Brokaw about 10 years ago. He's speaking about his thoughts on Vietnam. What did you think about Vietnam? My idea was that basically how are we supposed to be going around telling other people what to do when we weren't doing things right here. Uh, you got to remember, in the context of the times, the civil rights movement was going on. There were people who couldn't vote in this country, and yet we were going over to there telling those folks what to do and how to do it, and this is, the, this is the right way. So I thought that was kind of an odd uh, thing to be saying. Okay, so in 1969, because Alice's Restaurant was a film, now, um, it actually was kind of a, an art house film. It wasn't a, a, a wide, you know, release in theaters. It was number 21 in the box office. It only brought in $6 million. But um, do you get your mind into the time frame of 1969? Here are the hits of the box office. Number one was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, that starred Mr. Paul Newman and Robert Redford, both some uh, nice uh, samples of manhood to look at and uh let's see that brought in 29 million number two at the box office that year and uh it's a it's a favorite of mine as well it's a disney film the love bug with dean jones and buddy hackett brought in 21 million my parents took my brother and i in our own little love bug we had a a beetle Volkswagen Beetle, and they took us to the drive-in, and we saw the love bug. Aww. I remember it vividly. <laughs> Number three was Midnight Cowboy. Now, that introduced us to uh, Dustin Hoffman. Actually, it might have been his second film. Yeah, this was not his first. Uh, the the, uh, the Graduate was his first, I believe. <laughs> That's right. And uh, John Voigt. Now, uh, Midnight Cowboy, with number three, brought in $20.5 million. And just to put your mind into uh, where Alice's Restaurant sat in the box office that year, well, the film that did one better, number 20 in the box office, was a film that had Mr. Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood, so some staples of the uh, the wide, Wild West films. He was in a film called Where Eagles Dare, brought in $7.1 million. And then the film that was just a rung below Alice's Restaurant at number 22 is a film that starred Ian McShane and our favorite Suzanne Plachette. And it was number 22 called If It's Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium. And our watch party was my first exposure to this film. And, uh, you know, I will go ahead and just say that due to 
my inheritance of that love of film that I got from my father who, you know, he used to skip school because he was going through an unhappy childhood and go to the movies. That's how he got through life. I've learned from that example that you can inject happiness into your reality by revisiting these great stories. And when I watched Alice's Restaurant, to me, it wasn't about, you know, this is set in the 60s. It wasn't about the clothing or the fashions or, you know, the time frame. I'm just seeing it as this character, Arlo Guthrie's character, is a young man who's going through life. And he has all these challenges. At the time our country is at war, there's a chance that he might actually be, um, you know, um, drafted. You know, and his friends are disappearing. He's having to do odd jobs to get by. And he's got friends that he tries to keep in touch with. But suddenly they're being disconnected. Somebody may move or may end up going to war. So there's or 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 dying of a drug overdose, as one of the characters does. Yes. So to me, this was more about. You know, a, um, seeing the story of a young man who's going through a difficult time, and it just so happens to be set in that time period that we're still at war in Vietnam. Yeah, it's it's very much of that time. But I agree with what you said. It's 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 not a film that mm, it was a product of his time, but I think came out in '69, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. You you could uh, you you could say there's a lot of similarities between uh, Alice's Restaurant and Easy Rider, two movies that came out around the same time that had that cinema verite style where they they just shot and if the sun got you know if the sun silhouetted things then it silhouetted things. If a, a car went by and uh, obscured the sound, well. That's life. That's what that's what that's what it really sounds like when you're out there. So that's cinema verite. And there's a lot of like uh, both movies, I think, kind they the the director and the actors, I think, very much made it up as they went along. Uh, The last episode you released in 2020 was uh, How About You from 2007, which. Uh, it's a holiday comedy drama. I, d- I don't uh, really know this one at all. You had a, you had uh, a guest, Matt Burlingame was was uh, your guest. Matt Matt, Matt Burlingame, who does the show called Chubb's Gone Wild, um, and uh, he was that. I thought it was a uh, an unknown uh, project for me, DJ. What uh, what can you say about it? Yeah, so um, How About You is a film that I discovered quite by chance. At the time, I was entertaining family who dropped by to do their holiday shopping back when we weren't afraid to go out into the world. And, um, well, I was free babysitting. But anyways, we we put on the boob tube and we wanted to find a holiday movie. And I saw this How About You and what drew me in was not the fact that you've got an action hero in this movie, which Toppy can maybe talk a little bit about. We've got a uh, a comic book-based character that this actress got to play. But no, Brenda Blythen was in this film, and Imelda Staunton, and they play sisters. 
who don't like each other very much. Ah. And you also have uh, Vanessa Redgrave is the grand dame of the senior living community. So how about you is just about a young woman who um, is between relationships and is asked to help her sister out who is running a senior living community. So, of course, she thinks, oh, well, I'll just go there for a few months or whatever and, you know, I'll I'll help out. But she gets invested in the characters because, of course, as some of the conversations you, you may hear from time to time about Toppy and I, um, I think it's, you know, um, aptly said that we both believe that we aren't the age that we appear to the world. We're the sum of our experiences. And that's one of the great things about films like this is you meet these people who maybe are in the later years of their life, but they are someone on the inside. And, and that's one of the characters that the, the lead gets invested in is this older woman at the senior community who is uh, going through a struggle. She, she may be battling cancer. She's clearly had brighter days, but she's not letting that weigh on her shoulders. She's getting through life with a little bit of help from some herbal medication. <laughs> and and uh, she's sharing her scrapbook of the glory days with this young lady who's helping her sister. I must apologize because, of course, I didn't... Uh, uh, it's probably not the most memorable of, of titles. I think it's linked to a song, but it's not. Um, of course, I realize now that it's one that you did a, a, a watch party for. And um, I, uh, when you mentioned some of the other actors, I realized, of course, I have seen it. And I think I've even covered it on uh, a watch party episode of the Jalef podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, I know it better than I thought I knew it. But um, not the most I'm... memorable of titles. Uh, another favorite of mine for that season, I, th- I thought I, I really liked it. I really like uh, DJ said it very well that there's these elderly uh, characters and, you know, it's sad but true, but we're very dismissive, you know, of uh, people as they get older. We We just are. And this movie reminds us that they were young once they had whole lives behind them. They did things, they failed at things, they succeeded. And this movie reminds us that, that those, that that's, they're still there. They may be older, but these are the people that did these things and, uh, they need a little help now, but, uh, they're, there are revelations and uh, from the characters that they they bring out in each other, um, and and this is another movie where you you could say yes it's it's a comedy but it, it it's it's got very real poignant stuff in it. It's got yeah. yeah. I have I have um, uh, there's actually a, a movie. You, you probably would probably fit quite well to a future season of Matty Minutia called Made in Italy. It, um, it, it came out quite, you know, quite recently, but it, it was described as a, I, I kind of thought I'd watch it because I had free access to it. Um, it's a film with Liam Neeson and it has his own son. Um, uh, I'll try to pronounce Michael, Michael, it might just be an Irish spelling of Michael Richardson. 
and uh, it's about loss because the characters Liam Neeson's character has lost his wife and his son has lost his mother and which is what happened to them in real life um, so you, when you're watching you can't help but think this has got some autobiographical stuff in it or certainly the feelings that they're going through must must have come up <laughs> and, and it's described as a comedy drama and I and I, and I, I, I found it far far too sad to be I mean it has funny you know it's been like describing Doctor Who as a comedy because there's some funny lines it was it was not far much more a drama than it was a comedy uh, and and possibly you could say um, the same about it about um, how about you is that you know it's almost more more drama than you know it, it deals with such serious things that yes it has funny segments but to, to just, just describe it as a comedy drama, you can imagine somebody going, sort of expecting it to be a laugh a minute. And it's it's a really funny genre of comedy dramas, or what falls into comedy dramas, because some comedy dramas are far more comedy than drama, and some are more drama than comedy. Um, yeah, I, I I love that mix and movies that, that handle it deftly, and I think All About You did that to a great extent. I think uh, Alice's it. Restaurant did that. Um but it's yeah. it's uh, I just because that's that, life. That's life. Yeah. You know, sometimes but it's I, heavy, sometimes it's funny. But I almost feel that it kind of. I worry that people who are looking for something a bit deeper would 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 not watch some of these films. They, oh, I'm not really sure. I want to watch a comedy. Oh, I'm looking for something a bit deeper, and and <laughs> these ones are deeper. Uh, I think having the word comedy can sometimes make you well, think making a different sort of film. It's interesting that you mentioned Made in Italy. Now, I have not yet seen it myself, but I, I did just pen it down um, mm. because Liam Neeson was married to Natasha Richardson. Mm. That, yeah. You know, that was his wife we lost. Mm. But um, Natasha Richardson is Vanessa Redgrave's daughter. Yeah. And she was the star of How About You? So we, we have an yeah. interesting uh, you know circle going on here. Yeah. This is one of the things that Toppy and I run into quite often is we'll go down a rabbit hole, we'll see, oh, this director did this movie with these actors that we like. I wonder what other films this director has done. Mm. Oh, goodness, three pages later, and now I've got at least two movies <laughs> I want to see. Yeah, I definitely, I'd recommend Made in Italy as a, a, a potential for a future season, because I think it fits into your sort of, yeah, the sort of films you cover, and it's and it has that added element of being... You know, what's going on behind the scenes is 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 almost what's going on in front of the scenes, um, or you imagine it must be to a, a point. But uh, what well, your first um, episode of 2021 was about um, a sci-fi? Uh, is it a, is it a film called The Expanse uh, from 2015? I don't. I definitely don't know this one. Oh well, it's actually a series. Ah. Um, and it was based upon a series of books which uh, I'll admit I haven't read one page of yet but this was a show that uh, started on the sci-fi channel here in the states and after I want to say two maybe three seasons there was a threat of cancellation and then of course the fans rallied and Amazon picked it up so they got another I believe three maybe four seasons and I think, as we speak, they're uh, due to release their final season that was, uh, you know, shot during parts of the pandemic. So it was a, a prolonged period of anticipation before it was released. But 
Yeah, it's a sci-fi series. Um, we hadn't actually done one in a while. Mm-hmm. I remember I found uh, this one particularly difficult to get into and and be prepared for, and it just wasn't grabbing me um, right up through the end. I, uh, I, it was just so many characters, and I, 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 I felt like I, I can't. You know, it just seemed like too much material to get to know and understand. So I had a real hard time with that one. Although I, I remember it did what it did well. I mean, it was like it's one of your your top five episodes as well. I guess if it's a current show, that also draws people who are currently watching it in um, um, sort of people who are interested in this in this in this in that series. Um, you know, quite often science fiction has a uh, tendency to be more fantastical. We we want people to believe there's hope for the future. And, of course, some people feel that the shows that are more optimistic, like Star Trek, has traditionally been in the past, at least. But then you also get the realists who say, that stuff from Star Trek, that's never going to happen. Let's get something that's a little bit more real. You need to still have violence. You still need to have prejudice. So you get shows like Babylon five, which I never watched, you know, uh, religiously pardon the term. And when it was in its initial run and I caught it later on, I can appreciate it, but the expanse is sort of that, um, you know, sense of this is possibly the way the future is going to be. It's not going to be all wine and roses, We'll get there, but this is what it's going to be like. And it's about class. Like, um, you know, the the turn of the century stories where you've got the quote-unquote working class who are struggling to make ends meet. And then you've got the people on the upper crust who are clearly living it up. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in between, you know, there's there's a happy medium. But in The Expanse, you've got all of these people who... Their way of life is just simply getting by because they're providing for those upper crust people who take it for granted that they have clean air to breathe, that they have water. And they have those things because these working class people have all struggled to provide it for them. Do they get any reward from it? Not really. But that is the reality of the expanse. You you get to see that that middle ground that everything isn't picture perfect in the future we will eventually get there and there was some politics involved with that show which is what was sort of refreshing you got to see the struggle of those people who provided for the upper class they eventually decide that they're gonna you know take a stand and say hey (laughs) we need to have some of the credit for this glory here Mm -hmm. Um, I do recall that the visualization of this world that they were, that the creators, the showrunners were, were building. uh, I mean, you you can just tell they put so much thought and energy uh, into uh, working out how this whole world they created would, would work and how different factions depending on where they lived and work would would work off of each other so it's it, it was brilliant in that in that respect well, and uh, next up we have 
I think it's your your second highest um, rated episode of the season, uh, and it's one of one of the oldest films you've covered, Anatomy of a Murder from 1959 with James Stewart and Lee Remick. Yeah, I chose that one just because it's just such a damn good movie, uh, and it has such classic performances in it by Jimmy Stewart. Um, I mean, it was it was just a good solid movie that was. Uh, I mean, there there had been courtroom dramas before. I mean, the the Paradigm Case with Gregory Peck, uh, but but they all seemed to be of a period. Um, and this was the first courtroom drama that really seemed modern. It still feels modern in a lot of ways, even though it's really quite an old movie now. Um, and uh, you know, they they deal with the, the subject of rape rather uh, bluntly um, in in a way that uh, at the time movies just didn't do. You just didn't do that. Um, and so it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, but basically just a, a hell of a story, hell of an ending. Uh, I mean, uh, just a damn good movie. Now, following that, you covered. For your enjoyment, we're going to play a feature here that uh, it may have aired in the theater. It's kind of one of those news reels. This is the premiere of Anatomy of a Murder in 1959. The Michigan background of the motion picture version of last year's bestseller, Anatomy of a Murder, demands Detroit as the scene for its gala world premiere. Bringing to the auto capital some of the Hollywood principles responsible for Otto Preminger's dramatic adaptation. Among them, Lee Remick, the female star of Anatomy of a Murder. Lawyer Joseph N. Welch, actor Arthur O'Connell, and producer-director Preminger, with Mrs. Welch accompanying the barrister-turned-actor. Inspiring a whirlicane of socials such as this press club luncheon where Miss Remick hears Mr. Preminger thank the citizens of the state for their cooperation during the filming of the picture on locations in Upper Michigan. So continuing the conversation on the story here, Toppy, um, just thought I would... Yeah, bef- uh, mm-hmm. before, we, before we do, I, it's worth mentioning uh, that, that Preminger started out at 20th Century Fox in the studio system, but by this time, he had busted out of the studio system and he was an independent director and producer and he independently did his films from then on including this one anatomy of uh, uh, murder mm-hmm. and being free of of the studio system enabled him to do subjects like a movie about someone who got raped and uh being uh, well, for that time, very explicit. So, yes, back to the story. Oh, well, then uh, Mr. Uh, Otto there is uh, ahead of his time because it's still another decade or more before that, you know, traditional studio system is sort of broken up and quote-unquote old Hollywood has is, is, uh, gone aside. Yeah. So, Anatomy of a Murder was... One of only um, a small handful of films like this that we've done, you know, we we talked about um, 
I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember his name. The 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 famous uh, courtroom guy that uh, you know everyone uh, picked on him because he was a big guy at the end of his career. Oh, help me along, folks. Not Perry Mason, not uh, yes, yes. Oh, okay. right. So we we um you know we we had only done maybe a couple of films uh, or programs of this ilk at the time, but. Um, you know, I I enjoyed it because I had only seen Jimmy Stewart in a handful of roles. And, of course, most notably, people will remember him from um, It's a Wonderful Life, of course. But uh, this was such a different role for me to see him in. I, you know, I so enjoyed it because he was playing a serious part. And... Um, I, I understand totally how this is one of our most popular episodes because anything like this where it it uh, deals with the details of reality, someone's existence, that's something that's sort of timeless. This type of series of events could happen now. It's just a matter of time and place that's going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it had clever twists and uh, and I, I would say that when this movie came out, it was hugely popular. And uh, I, I would uh, I, I don't know this for a fact. I, I can just you can just tell that this movie spawned a lot of TV material. Uh, you know, it's what it's it's the origins of Matlock and all these other courtroom uh, shows. But it, it was the template for all courtroom dramas to come later and uh, there there's a scene in the courtroom as the case unfolds and i had to just sort of rewind and watch that scene over and over because you know in 21st century terms reality tv has just struck our nerves where we don't expect things to be scandalous anymore and they actually kind of walked on eggshells about explaining the fact that women's undergarments were part of this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, yeah. Uh, and there was this whole procedure where they, they had to, uh, you know, the, I, I think it may have been the judge where the judge said, now I'm going to tell you that these undergarments play an important role in this case. And I will have no snickering or teeing about it. So he was basically just telling the courtroom, the entire courtroom and the jury to just deal with it and be mature. <laughs> The other interesting thing is that the judge in this movie was a real judge. This story was based on something real, I think. And they got the same damn judge that was in the real case to act in the movie. And it's like, my God, this man should have been an actor his whole life. He's a natural. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's just an interesting bit of trivia about the movie. Well, the next movie you covered was from 1984. Um, it was co- called Lust in the Dust with Tab Hunter and Divine, a comedy western. Um, <laughs> uh, tell us about this one. <laughs> well, um, as Tapia and I are one to do, we we um, occasionally take a trip down to the mid-Atlantic coast to the, the Baltimore area. 
And so we have a, a handful of friends there. Now, this film is uh, sort of uh, John Waters adjacent. And by that, I mean the cast are people who have worked with John Waters. And this story may have been one that was pitched to him at one point. But this movie is not directed by John Waters. Of course, it stars the ever-infamous Divine, who's been in such things as... Um, help me out here. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Pink Flamingos. Um, oh, there's a whole series of uh, people, what people call trashy movies. And John Waters is proud that people think of them as trashy movies because that's the kind of movie he wanted to make, was trashy that's movies. Right. Hairspray. And, uh, Hairspray, more, yeah, Hairspray is a more mature work from John Waters, mm. meant uh, to be of interest to a, a wider audience. But his earlier films it were, were deemed just too gross and too primitive. And, of course, John Waters just loved that. And he, he meant them for the drive-in audiences that uh, flocked to see them at midnight at the time. That's where, you know, that's when where his stuff was the most popular. But uh, anyways, John Waters doesn't have a thing to do with this. No, but the, in the cast, Lust in the Dust stars uh, 50s-era famed actor Tab Hunter and, of course, Divine. And they had previously worked on a John Waters film together, and I want to say it was Polyester, so it's, uh, you know, as I said, it's a John Waters adjacent film. And we try to we, we strive to talk about the films and TV shows that maybe aren't talked about as much because, you know, anybody can be an expert on the box office smash because everybody went to see that movie. Who hasn't seen Titanic six million times? <laughs> but, you know, these films that were only on, you know, cable <laughs> late at night because they weren't a hit at the box office. That's what I want to talk about because no one else knows that little gem about what went on at the water cooler. But, you know, Tab Hunter and Divine. Now, forgive me because I'm forgetting her name right now, but the actress who was in the Big Fat Greek Wedding films as the mother, she is in the beginning of her career in this film, and she plays opposite divine i'm forgetting her name too <laughs> but she's uh, sort of the madam of the cantina uh -huh. that divine finds herself in in this backwater town that uh she's been drawn to somehow by fate and of course through the story you learn that uh you know her father had once passed through the area there but you know th that was the appeal of lust and the dust is that there's so much in this that's a like a John Waters film, why not check it out? Because, you know, uh, a good part of what makes a film is the talent that's in it. So, you know, if it's not the same person behind the camera, maybe the ones in front of the camera might make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next episode we covered, I was involved with this, um, Howard and Maud from 1971. In fact, we... Uh, we, we appeared at Farpoint Virtual Convention um, uh, talking about Howard and Maud. And I, I very much enjoyed going back to it, having not watched it for many years and sort of couldn't believe that I hadn't. 
<laughs> seeing it again more because, because it was so 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 good. Um, I, I sort of was surprised that I hadn't gone, been going back to it more regularly. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of my all-time favorite movies that I'll I'll just go back again and again uh, to watch because of the performances and the message and the music and. Uh, uh, it really—it's one of those movies that just—it speaks to me, as they say, and uh, and this movie does, um, and it's it's an it's an odd, very odd comedy, I would say dark comedy, and but it really works for me, and and I can never get enough of Ruth Gordon uh, in the character of Maud and Bud Court as as Harold, uh, they both do. I mean, they just, they work this movie, and I think it's magic. I, I really liked uh, Ruth Gordon from um, Rosemary's Baby, and I, ha- I have her autobiography, uh, which um, I was able to bring out <laughs> to, uh, to when we were on the, the uh, webcam at the convention. It's a shame that they never posted that video on there. I, I, perhaps they didn't feel it fitted in enough with the sci-fi, but I think we would have got, Good, good views had it um, being on their their video site because uh, uh, it was one of your most popular episodes. I think there would have been people who might have missed it live who would have who would have watched it. And when you watch, when you look at their video channel from the convention, there's some videos on there. They've only got two or three views, and you think, well, well if we'd have been, if we'd have had our videos loaded up, I think we'd have got at least a couple of hundred. So. <laughs> um, yeah, what Paul's referring to is. Is that uh, because of COVID, the, nobody was actually at a convention in person. <laughs> it was all done online, and uh, we ha- we did a presentation, and it was Harold and Maude. Now, one could ask, why didn't you guys do something science fiction? It was a science fiction convention, and I have no answer for that. It just worked out that way. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, by way of a dark alley, it, it inspired um, a related science fiction thing. But uh, to pedal back a little bit, because I like to do that sometimes. Um, you know, as Toppy was saying about my fellow Americans, you have these older people, these senior actors who are just talking dirty for, you know, for the comic relief. Now, that's how I came to know of Ruth Gordon was because of the movies she did with Clint Eastwood that starred primates. So she was the dirty talking old lady who threatened to blow people's heads off with the shotgun on her front porch. But uh, just like keeping tabs on somebody that you went to school with who may have been socially awkward and you're surprised that this person became successful at a certain hidden talent, I'm delighting in the fact that I go back to see these other films that um, Ruth Gordon was in, including Harold and Ma, because they're just a, a treasure to discover. Now, adjacent to Harold and Maude, because this, this truly made me think of it, there is a more recent film that's very much in the vein of this, who uh, stars, unfortunately, um, gone too young actor Anton Yelchin, who was in the more recent uh, Star Trek remake films. He was in a movie called Charlie Bartlett, and he was a young man who basically acted, um, you know, older than his own age. Um, but it, it was very much inspired by that Harold and Maude uh, sense of reality that he knew 
uh, something of the world. But, um, you know, I, I, I certainly think that Ruth Gordon is what drew me into Harold and Maude and um, just the um, the shock factor of what Harold did, how he approached life when he was set in these social situations where his mother is trying to set him up on dates. And, you know, at one point he sets himself on fire, or at least you think so. And, uh, you know, the, the other part of this that's a happy accident, if we can call it that, is I later learned that the actress who played Harold's mother, Vivian Pickles, was also <laughs> one of my favorite Disney films of all times, starring a young Jodie Foster, David Niven, and Helen Hayes, Kendall Shue. And it was a bit part... But after hearing her voice, I'm like, wait a minute. She was in candle shoe. She was the maid that got fired for stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, candle shoe and, and uh, Harold and Maude were the only two American movies she ever made. Oh, <laughs> no, she, she was very in demand in the UK. And that was her career over there. And it, it was a bit of a fluke. She was in Harold and Maude. I have no idea how she how how she ended up being in Candleshoe, but that I think those are her only two American credits. And yes, in school, I was uh, I was voted most likely to be random. <laughs> I think we might have talked about her um, on on uh, one of our Chatterbox episodes, of the Shadow Podcast, is one of our uh, wiki wonders because I think I did an episode around the time I'd just come off from talking about it, so it was all sort of, oh, I want to talk more about Harry Maud <laughs> on my shows. <laughs> um, DJ, we have our own guest. We sure do, and uh, joining us from the other side of the pond... The Shy Life Podcast. Hello, great to be here. What is your name? Harold. Harold Chase. I'm Dame Marjorie Shardam, but you may call me Maud. We're going to be great friends. What's your take on this film? What enticed you about it? And what are your favorite parts? Well, I... <sighs> I just made me laugh so when we laugh so much in moments and cry it was, sort of, it was either one or the other there was no halfway um, there was no way halfway marks with it um it, it uh, uh, the, I, I, I do wonder maybe maybe the black comedy side of it is is more me than it was the first time because I was laughing like a, a bucket all the all the, all the times all of the like when, when he when he gets introduced to the three different girls, and, and uh, the, the first one he, he makes it look like he's setting himself on fire, and then he and, and she sees, and then he and then he like walks in the room, and then the other one where he he just starts chopping it away at his arm, and 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 then the third one is is almost as, as eccentric as he is, and, and gets into the spirit of the whole thing. Um, um, uh, one, just to just to add to that, Paul. What a brilliant way to to start the movie, because oh, the movie yeah. starts out with one of his yeah. uh, suicide scenes, yeah. and it starts out you don't really know what's happening. Uh, you mm. see someone you're not sure who it is. It doesn't focus in on the face 
right away at all, but there's some sort of formula, like maybe he's lighting candles for a dinner table. Uh, and then uh, right when the, the music's coming at an end, the credits are coming to an end, thump, the chair falls over and he's hanging. Yeah. What the F? <laughs> what, a, then, what an incredible beginning. Yeah. But then on top of that, then, then a lady, you don't know, it's his mother immediately, just walks in and is like, uh, and you think she's like, she's very calm and you think, oh, she's going to ring the police, but then she rings somebody else and, and she knows it because she knows him of old. She knows it's, I think, you know, I think she says, years. I think she says, oh, Harold. Anyways, then you really wonder what, <laughs> what's going on. But you see, you immediately realize that Harold isn't dead or really hanging. Yeah. It's, he's, he, 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 he starts making choking noises like, <laughs> anyways. But he's, he's put he's, he's blacked his tongue. As well, which is oh, yeah. like he's <laughs> and he's also he's he's put very white makeup on, so it's so he's done all of the stage work for Hot right. Well. He's certainly not an amateur at this, so of course you <laughs> right from that first scene, you know that he's done this before. Now I might have to group the next few in, in sort of pairs because uh, we we we're, uh, we're we're coming to a little bit sort of in the last quarter of the show so we've got next up we've got phantom of the opera from 2004 and we've got uh, a six billion dollar man um i think this was was this the pilot episode you were talking about what would you like would you like I to think say anything about those two we talked a lot about the the pilot movies there were three pilot movies yeah. um and we we talked about the series uh I remember saying I would never ever say that this was a great series, but it it works on me because I was a kid when I saw it. And frankly, when I was in uh, junior high school, uh, there was nothing cooler than the Six Million Dollar Man. That's it. There just wasn't. Okay. And when he fought Bigfoot, that's all we could talk about the next day. <laughs> But I would wow. never, I would never call it a great poor, TV show. Poor Bigfoot, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, a misabuse, a, a, a abuse of Yeti family. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that reminds me. I threatened to open the discussion with a joke, and we're talking about uh, Bigfoot. Would you like my joke now? Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. So, how can you tell if a shy Yeti has been using your swimming pool? <laughs> I don't know. How do you? There's all sorts of vinyl records about, and your filter needs cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> so if for nothing else, I have to tip my hat to uh, the $6 million man and Mr. Lee Majors, because uh, for what it's worth, he normalized playing with doll- playing with dolls for boys. <laughs> 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 kind of true. Kind of true. Well, I think G.I. Joe broke the mold there, but certainly uh, uh, there there was an era where uh, all boys, that, that's what they wanted, was the, the Lee Major $6 million man doll. Lee, Lee Majors was one of my first um, crushes, but not in $6 billion man, in um, The Fall Guy, um, because there was a scene in the title sequence where he was sitting smoking with a hat on in a tin bath, and and 10 or 11 year old me um, kind of used to watch the title sequence never bothered watching the whole program but I, I did always tune into the title sequence <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, Lee Majors 
just happened to have that face where he was macho in a way that perhaps Charles Bronson could be macho, but he was also cute uh, and very appealing to both sexes. And, uh, I mean, he just had the looks. I mean, that's just about all there is to it. And he had a really nice career, uh, uh, basically, because he was quite a handsome man. As a quite masculine uh, woman neighbor nurse once told me, he had bedroom eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tim Bath eyes as well. Um, (laughs) the, um, The Phantom of the Opera... Um, I, I was going to say, in, in a way, um, it was the sort of second time that you were covering this storyline, but the first time you covered it was far more obscure because it was Phantom of the Paradise, which is basically the Phantom of the Opera, but you, you, you kind weird. of, it's just dis- <laughs> weird and it's disguised with lots of weird songs and, and, and a, a sort of rocky horror sort of aesthetic. Um, yeah, um, I, I saw... <laughs> Uh, 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 who's the guy that wrote the music? Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Thank you. Uh, I, I saw uh, Webber's uh, Phantom on stage, and, you know, I mean, you know, gee, it was something. Say what you will about um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's material. Um, but, uh, you know, it certainly caught the magic, and the music was good, and you 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 would leave recalling a lot of the music and this movie just simply was a, a fairly i have to say pedestrian uh, way of putting it on screen where they really wanted it to 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 have the cinema bring in weirder aspects for example on stage when they're riding in the boat through the sewers and on stage these candles uh, are lit or and and uh to make it stranger still the movie chose to have other things rise out of the water uh i think maybe uh, like i think hands carrying the candles or other things and they just never went far enough to make to to take advantage of what cinema could bring to the story so it's almost like uh they weren't you know, they didn't try hard enough. So in, that's why I say, you know, kind of pedestrian uh, take on something they really could have made uh, uh, a thousandfold more more magical and stranger if, if they had. Perhaps they didn't have the budget. I don't know. You know, um, this actually ends up being one of only a couple of musicals that we've covered. So alike courtroom dramas these are probably some genres that you could uh, stand to see more of in our future seasons. But um, as Toppy was saying, he saw Phantom of the Opera uh, on stage as well as I did as well. Um, you know, the, the thing that uh, was most interesting about the film version is, of course, I, I think there was something about, um, you know, studios having rights to make the film. And so, Maybe they were running out of time because I think that maybe the current cast was due to leave the production and they had to, you know, hurry up and make the film before the run was over or something of that kind. But Gerard Butler as the Phantom, okay, he's pretty to look at, but everybody knows 
he has said so on interviews. I can't sing. <laughs> okay, and all I can say is, if if he can't sing, then he sure sounded good to me. I I don't I don't have an opinion other than I if nobody if I'd never heard that I would have said yeah he's a good singer. But apparently people really disagree about this. By the way, the other thing I really want to say is we did another musical called Moulin Rouge, one of my favorite all times things we've ever done on Matt Manusha. DJ. Paul, can you imagine Phantom of the Opera being done with the style, the, 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 the chutzpah, and the imagination that Moulin Rouge was created? Imagine it, all the surreal things in that movie and, and how stagey it was at some points, but also how uh, they used the cinema, because it is a movie, to do things they never could have done on stage. And imagine uh, imagine Phantom of the Opera being done like Moulin Rouge was done. That's the kind of like, that's why I say Phantom of the Opera, it was a pedestrian uh, filming of a stage play. Just, you know, Moulin Rouge was brilliant. Uh, both Six Million Dollar Man and uh, Phantom of the Opera were in your sort of top six episodes, so um yeah um so the next two we need to talk about are Baba Hotep from 2002 with Bruce Campbell <laughs> and Audrey Davis and Warehouse 13 uh TV series on the Sci-Fi channel I'll uh, just say I'll just say briefly both of these uh were things that DJ picked up that I'd never heard of in my entire <laughs> life never and I got to tell you that Bubba Hotep tickled me to no end. I so enjoyed it. Uh, and Warehouse 13, uh, I, I also liked, but but not as much as as uh, uh, Bubba Hotep. That that movie, I mean, I you know I think I'd call that a favorite of mine because it's just the it's a unique blend of horror and comedy, which is really hard to do well. And I thought I think this movie did it well. Uh, because yeah. I know Evil, I know um, Bruce Campbell from The Evil Dead, but um, the more The Evil Dead films go on, the more comedy yeah. comes into them. So right. I can well believe that he's very good at comedies. So. And 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 Bubba Hotep is is very uh, much in the range of, you know, he's playing playing uh, Elvis Presley, and he does it rather well. Yeah. I mean, he, he comes across quite believably. As always, Presley. Anyways, what what do you think about those two? I I enjoyed them way more than I ever thought I would. You know, Bubba Hotep was quite an accident. I stumbled upon clearly and literally. We we found it in a discount bin somewhere, and the film came in a little leather jacket like Elvis would have worn. So. <laughs> You know, I said to myself, there's got to be something special about this film. They've put the character on the outside wrapper. So, of course, they had to come home with us. But, you know, um, just uh, on the point of the story, this is one of those rare films where you have characters that are part of history. But now you're seeing their history that has never been told. These are two people who basically were either taken from us due to an early death or just disappeared who's to say we don't know all the details but how often do you get to see a film with older characters who are basically making fun of the nature of life they're older they're getting on in their years 
and there are moments of humanity and perhaps humbleness. Elvis is excited about the pretty nurse that's come to visit him, but she's not there to, uh, you know, to, to make his day. She's there because it's medication time or he needs his treatment <laughs> or, you know, or a bath. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. I'm, uh, I'm currently reading a fascinating autobiography by Sybil Shepherd, which I think she wrote in the nineties, but she talks about her sort of encounters with Elvis, which, uh, never quite went quite the way that Elvis wanted them to, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> It, uh, yeah, it's a it's a interesting autobiography. I, I I don't know what made me buy it because I there's nothing particularly in my sort of things that I like um, that that Sybil Shepherd's in. But uh, yeah, um, I'm just trying to thought she'd be interesting. She'd probably tell an interesting story. Something. Uh, I, I would highly recommend uh, the first couple of seasons, and if you can bear it all the way through the end, because it it still had its magic moonlighting with bruce willis and yeah I, I, want to buy, I want to buy the dvd box but it's out of print at the moment um i only ever saw the last episode which is bizarre but i i, I remember seeing at the time it was screened the last episode they um, uh they they always broke the fourth wall in the series but they did it in more and more <laughs> weirder ways as the seasons went on and um the show just got damn strange. <laughs> it's weird because it sounds like, and it's slightly off the point, but it sounds like her seventies, that like her career in the seventies was really big, and then her the early eighties was all TV movies, and uh, well, what, what, what am I going to do next? And then moonlighting sort of, sort of catapulted her back into um, a high level of fame again. But yeah. Now, here's a tip to all of you who are TV and film enthusiasts. If you're like Mr. Paul Shayetti and you're having difficulty locating a copy of something, it's perfectly legal to shop in other countries for films. <laughs> but because we Americans don't read the fine print and our labels, there are countries that don't like to do business with us because we don't understand you can't buy a disc from Greece and put it in my DVD player at home and have it work. Well, there are ways around that, and it's perfectly legal to own a actual desktop computer. And it might be possible for you to play discs from other countries. Mm-hmm. Not telling you you should do that, but it might be an well, idea. I have a multi-region player that can cope with everything, so I think uh, it's perfectly uh, just need to shop around and get the right. Uh, I've got a Blu-ray player that plays Blu-rays, DVDs from wherever they come from. So, because I have, yeah, I have interests all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a jet-setting yeti. <laughs> what what movie was grouped with Bubba Hotep? Um, oh. Well, Warehouse Thirteen. Oh, okay, I guess we covered it. Yeah. No, I was just going to say real quickly, um, my my affinity for Warehouse 13 was it was a new show that came on when my husband-to-be and I were moving in together. So we had a tradition that when it was time for that week's episode, we would bake a batch of oatmeal cookies with butterscotch morsels. They're called oatmeal scotchies, and they were one of the main characters' favorite snacks. So... Um, Warehouse 13, that's why we, we watched that, because it had a soft spot in my heart. I feel like yeah. I, I may have seen uh, bits of it. Like uh, I, don't think it, I don't think it was shown on Sci-Fi Channel. Well, it may have been, but I'm sure I've seen it on 
other another channel over here. And it had a lot of cameos from different Star Trek personalities, including Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan. Mm-hmm. Now, the next two pairings, um, one of them I'm particularly interested in, but I've never seen. And um, for, for, full um, confession, I've not heard this episode yet because I want to... Uh, watch the film first and then kind of you know have it as a companion piece we've got the little girl who lives down the lane and we've got um the miniseries v which miniseries of v i'm sure i saw back in the back in the 80s maybe um yeah. not at the time it was screened but 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 like uh, on a copy um the little girl who lives down the lane i have a copy of i can see it in my dvd collection i've had it a while and i haven't yet watched it so i really must get around to that so that i can uh, listen to this episode uh, yeah, little little girl lives down the lane was my choice, and I chose it because it was memorable for me uh, as, as a clever uh, story. Uh, Jodie Foster was quite memorable in it as a fiercely independent uh, teenager, um, and Martin Sheen is memorable in it as this really evil uh, pervert uh, who's interested uh, sexually in Jodie Foster and she's not having it <laughs> and uh, I it, it's a peculiar movie it's strange it's got a weird flow it's got it's a it, it's it's just odd just odd and I never hear anyone ever talking about it so I wanted to feature it because mm. Uh, because I, well, I've just never heard anybody talk about it. There were only two things that Toppy had to tell me about this film that made me absolutely want to watch it. Judy <laughs> Foster and Martin Sheen. <laughs> and the fact that they're in this together just, you know, doubled the wow factor for me. Now, Jodie Foster, I think, uh, of course, is a, a woman of many talents. But just the fact that at this young age, She's playing a character not very much unlike Harold and Harold and Maude, where she has to put on airs. She has to be older than she has years on this earth because of her situation. And then, of course, you have Martin Sheen, who has played many very well-respected characters. And this is, of course, in the beginning of his career. So maybe we don't have the bar set quite as high for the paycheck, but it's still fun to watch him play this part because it just shows a whole other side to his abilities. Yeah. I mean, he's creepy. He's a great villain uh, in this movie. I'll um, try and dig out my copy and watch it this weekend. Uh, I've, had it, I've had it for a, number, a couple of years. I do buy, buy things and to watch and they go on my pile. Um, but uh, I, I recently saw a Martin Sheen film called The Believer from the mid '80s. Which oh, I love that movie. Uh, That's I, I don't a know, good movie. I don't know what made me. I think I was watching quite a lot of things on Prime, and sometimes it says if you watch this film, watch this, and and it was only a couple of pounds. To, to, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a free one, one that I had access to. But it was so. It, it just. And I think, like um, like uh, DJ was saying about how you go down these wormholes. I think it was directed, I believe it was directed by somebody good, isn't it? I think I've forgotten who. Yeah, I've yeah. forgotten who, but um, yeah, well-known director. Uh, DJ, The Believers is a movie about um, the world of voodoo. 
and uh, it, it's and how it breaks into this one man's life and uh, affects his son and actually his wife who doesn't live very long in the movie uh, anyways it, it, it's a it's a real good thriller finishing the conversation on Martin Sheen I would also while we're talking about his career recommend a film from the perhaps mid to late 80s um, and it was a film where his character takes care of his aging father, and it's just simply called Da. And this is a film that my sister has adored for ages, and um, it's hard to come by. I'm actually looking for a copy because, you know, many years later, and my father's no longer in the picture, uh, I'm curious to watch it to see, you know, my my take on that reality of, of caring for an older parent. Yeah, that, that made the rounds in the uh, art house movie theaters. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, critics loved it. It just never found a huge audience, but it was a, just a, a, a nice small movie about real, real people that seemed real and situations that seemed real. I think it takes place uh, either in the UK, I, I don't know, it may, might even be Australia. I'm not sure, but anyways, it's it's very good, very good. I I, I really feel I need to uh, going on to the other choice. I I, I need to watch um, I need to watch V again. I think because I think I was almost too young for it the first time. I'd only been ten when it came out, and but it, it was still something. It was I mean it's such such an eighties. Uh, yeah, yeah, show. it really was. Um, uh, it's fun. It's by the same guy, Kenneth Johnson, who had a big hand in the latter part of the Six Million Dollar Man. Kenneth Johnson would go on to do The Incredible Hulk and a lot of other. He sort of specialized in these kinds of I don't know super heroic characters and aliens and stuff very very 80s most notably in the early 90s he did my favorite non-Star Trek sci-fi series Alien Nation yeah and we did that on, on Matt Namanusha that's right he was involved in that yeah but yeah, yeah I, I too was quite young when V came out uh, Paul and I my initial impression of that show was that it was going to be a horror show because all of the TV commercials I saw was the guy's face getting ripped off and he was a lizard underneath <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it became one of those well it was highly promoted and I'm, I'm sure uh, you know at least the first episode probably got really great ratings um, but uh uh, you know, again, I would never call it great television. I just, I just wouldn't. <laughs> you know, but then that's what I'm looking for. I mean, this is why I've <laughs> all those seasons right. of Dynasty. I, I, I know Dynasty isn't, you know, it's not great TV. It's very mainstream, popular TV, but it's not great TV. <laughs> yeah, but it is great I, no, TV. <laughs> no, you, you, you will enjoy V, Paul. You will enjoy V. I like to think that our silent partner, because we can't afford him with our budget, is Gilbert Gottfried. Because growing up, I would always watch those films that weren't necessarily box office hits on Friday night on USA Network. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. By the way, just a pitch here. Uh, he certainly doesn't need it because everybody knows. But I, I love uh, Gilbert Godfrey's podcast, uh, the Humongous Pod. No, what's it called? Oh, amazing Colossal, I think. Yeah, made the Amazing Colossal podcast, and because it's about old movies and old television. It's not about his comedy, although it's Gilbert Godfrey, for God's sakes. He's got a foul mouth and a wicked um, sense of humor. So that all comes out. But it is about old TV and old movies, and I, I, I love it because of that. It, they talk about things that you, you just – they get guests, you know, that, that, that you'd never know a thing about if they didn't have them on the show, and it preserves a lot of uh, old Hollywood and old TV. So, uh, well, 83, when this miniseries came out, DJ, what was it competing against on the telly? Oh, right. So when V premiered as a miniseries, it was a two-night event, folks. And actually, um, before I tell you what's on uh, the uh, competition there, perhaps I should give you a little taste of the trailer for tonight's show. Shall I go ahead and play that? Ew, yes. Matt's, Matt's applauding, yes. We wondered what beings from another world would look like. And then at the moment of meeting, we learned they were just like us. We have come because we need your help. Our planet is in serious environmental difficulty. Their purpose on Earth, to save their dying world. The visitors desperately needed to import manufactured kettles not found on their planet. In return, we will gladly share with you all the fruits of our The visitors were warmly welcomed into every facet of our culture. It became a kid's dream to sign up with the Visitor Youth Corps. They earned our friendship, and sometimes even more. This became a welcome addition to our lives. They were here to stay. Mike Donovan and his colleague Christine Walsh became the celebrated T News crew to cover visitor affairs. But one night aboard the mothership, Donovan made a startling discovery. The operation is working perfectly. The visitors were lying. They were not like us. story on network television but before the broadcast the visitors commandeer the airwaves the alien spokesman john announced to the world that mike donovan was a threat to society as was anyone who questioned the visitors mission of peace and universal friendship donovan tried to tell christine mike i work so closely with people every day you don't believe me do it's all true. I've seen it, Chris. Donovan's mother couldn't be convinced. That's the most outrageous story I've ever heard. He became a fugitive. The aliens were determined to kill him before he spread the truth. But soon more people began rebelling against the visitor's stranglehold. However, anyone who tried to escape was taken prisoner. So that was a taste of what was... Good Lord! Did all that scary. happen? Holy yes. cow. That was actually a recap of the first night because it was a two night event. Oh, that was only the first night. 
Yes. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, it was a much anticipated event. So in 1983, on the old boob tube, uh, V was up against, well, it didn't have much competition, but V aired on the Peacock, the NBC. <laughs> and uh, it was over two nights, Sunday, May 1st and 2nd at 9 p.m. Now, on the other networks, on ABC, it was the Sunday night movie. And that film was 1941. It was a film about Pearl Harbor, and it was actually directed by Mr. Steven Spielberg. Talk about some stiff competition there. Wow. It also featured Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, and John Belushi. Yeah. And then also in competition with V on uh, Sunday nights, CBS ran The Jeffersons. And one of my personal favorites, Alice. You know what else was a much anticipated event in 1983? You tell. Yes. My puberty. <laughs> oh, Matthew. That's wonderful. Oh. And we're so and glad. And I think they... Mark Singer jump started it. So. Oh, yeah. dear. Oh, my goodness. So the next two films that um, go well together because. Um, that sort of fall into the same sort of genre to some extent. Uh, we've got Jeffrey from 1995 and Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, 1994, um, which I've seen both of those. Maybe not so recently, Jeffrey, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, the only thing I, I'd say about both of them is, is, is they're, they're considered comedies, but they're comedies with the heart. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's not just all goofiness. There's a real story in both of them, and uh, it, there's melodrama. There's there's funny lines. There's you know Priscilla has incredible images. Both well worth everyone's time if you haven't seen them. Yeah, these are two films that we picked because that time of year it was Gay Pride. So we wanted to lean towards the end of our season with a little bit of nostalgia that was a bit more recent. So, uh, you know, as as we um, go through our years, we find more and more of our peers, our coworkers, our folks that uh, were born after we were out of uh, school. <laughs> so I thought to myself, if we're going to have a story about gay pride, we need to lean upon these titles of Jeffrey and Priscilla Queen, the adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert, because these came out when I was finishing my high school year. So they are sort of the the foundation for um, identity. You know, you 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 have struggles in life. You may not get along with others, and these are the lessons that we take into life to be happy with what you've got, realize what others don't. And so, of course, you have Jeffrey, which is more directly the story of those who learn to survive through the AIDS crisis. You know, nowadays, it may be not as, um, you know, directly thought of as, uh, oh, I would never date a person who is HIV positive or whatever. Nowadays, we've got bigger concerns. But in 1990, oh, let me see, I think it was 94, 95, 
that was much more recently on people's minds. So, you know, you, you get some eye candy there and this is the world that they're living through. You know, the, the guy has been diagnosed as HIV positive, but even though he's pretty to look at, he's still a human being on the inside and he hasn't found that person who's going to give him a second chance, even though his world is crumbling. Yeah. So it's that it's, it's a time when, um, it all happened real fast, but it was a time when the, the first cocktails were becoming available and people were living with AIDS and, and, and having an extended life, but it was pretty early on. And, uh, the mindset still wasn't all that far from when AIDS was a death sentence. And if you had it, you were probably not going to live long. So uh, we're beyond that in this movie, but only just so far beyond it. So interesting time. Priscilla is more of the, the fantastical flip mm. side of that coin. You know, we're we're not dealing with the deep, dark issues of being HIV positive or of having AIDS in the city. You've got a man who is just trying to figure out how to be happy in life, and he's actually managed to have quite a convenient arrangement. Um, <laughs> I'm forgetting his name right now, but the, the lead... Uh, who is is? I'm sorry. He's uh, the, the, yeah. The actor's Terrence Stamp, I believe you're talking well, about. Well, Terrence Stamp is the older gentleman, but okay. the the guy uh, Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving is the main character of this film, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, of course, a lot of people will remember him from the Matrix movies as the uh, the agent that could be cloned. Yes, yeah, so interesting because this is this is a, is a character. You know, you couldn't have anything further than his Matrix role. I mean, this is a real person in Priscilla and a likable person and a a believable person. And it's kind of nifty seeing, yeah, I mean, this guy, you know, he's good. He's good. So he manages to, you know, sort of knit together all the elements he needs to have a family but yeah, he still has this life where he gets to enjoy the fantastic elements where he's a performer, he's a drag queen. And, you know, it's it's this road trip of him and his friends. But at the same time as they're living their truth and they're not being accepted by people around them because they do like to dress up, he's already managed to have what nobody assumes you're just handed. You know, he's he's got... A family. He has a kid. He may have had a wife. We we don't know. We're we're working towards that. It's it's sort of the subplot of the film. Yeah, there's a scene where his two closest friends are like, "I'm sorry, you were married. I'm sorry, you have a kid." <laughs> They're finding it out for the first time. That's how much he's he's hidden it. Uh, anyways, superb. Absolutely superb movie. Around this time, you also did a watch party. It wasn't, strictly speaking, an episode um, of, of the show, but and, and it, it, I feel like it fits in with these three, even though if you were going to pick the odd one out, it would be the odd one out. Um, <laughs> Muriel's Wedding, because I think it's a, a, a film that uh, has a very big following in the gay community, and yet there's nothing really terribly gay about it. There's no 
there there may be a gay character and it's a bit debatable but it's but it's just such a gay film <laughs> because it's all about well muriel is just such a camp character and it's all sort of abba and which kind of crosses over with um priscilla um when it's one of yeah. my favorite films. we had such a good time um watching that movie i think and i watched party yeah we did it uh uh, I, I, I'd never seen it, so that was my first time. I was very taken with Muriel's wedding. Um, it's one of those things that sparked um, Tony Collette for me because I've just never seen a film where I thought she was quite as good as she was in Muriel's wedding. I've always kind of wanted to feel that excited by something she's done, and, and I've never quite got there. Um, but I think she's yeah. very- I was going to say, and of course, uh, what linked together. Uh, Priscilla and Muriel from our watch parties, Australian actor Bill Hunter actually managed to appear in both films yeah. Yeah. that were made the same year. Uh, now, um, we've got three more films. So I'll mention all three of them. We can just talk um, about whatever aspect of them you like. Uh, we have Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow from 2004. We have Network from 1976 and Electric Dreams from 1984. I think the only one I've definitely seen is Electric Dreams because, again, you had a watch party and I watched it then. The, the most thing I knew about that film before I saw it was that, that one of the songs from the film was a really big <laughs> hit in the UK. Yes, uh, yes. Probably bigger uh, than the film was. All I could say is, you know, these three movies couldn't be more different from each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, here we are doing them on matinee minutia. I, uh, I, I, so I, I hope people like that aspect of our show um, because we get around in uh, we're not uh, stuck in any single genre. And these three movies are a perfect example of three movies that couldn't possibly be more different from each other. (laughs) I like to tell folks that our show is two friends of different generations sharing our favorite moments in film and television. So we get to expose each other, honk, to (laughs) these little gems that each other may not have necessarily found if we just walked our proverbial aisle of the video store that doesn't exist anymore. True. How often have I said on Matt name you should DJ, I never would have seen this movie if it hadn't been for you. <laughs> so that's one of the nice things about doing Matt name. I, I, DJ's exposed, exposed me to movies. I never, never would have taken the time to watch. Um, and, and we're worth watching. Uh, and the great thing is, is that uh, you know we get to be person, we get to be friends in person sometimes, and so there there are minor repercussions to being exposed to a bad movie because you pick the next one. <laughs> in real life, friendship in, in real life friendships are like overrated. All my all my best friends are now online mainly, or or I see or I speak to you guys more than I speak to my in real in real life. <laughs> It's all the same. Everyone's the same. It's, it doesn't matter if you've never actually been in the same room. You, you know, if I play, if I play, if I take my headphones out, you're in this room. So. Yeah. yeah. And if you weren't shocked or appalled by the fact that I had you watch a Carrie Fisher movie from the '80s with little persons in a hotel. <laughs> You just stick around, Missy. There's a new season of Matinee Menusha. Yeah, okay. 
Folks, I can't even imagine what movies DJ's going to come up with. I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> Insert evil cackle here. Is there anything in uh, any, uh, well, what are the details for season four? Like, when do you start? Well, I don't know. I Maybe DJ's thought ahead. I certainly have not. We're in a, hi- a hiatus right now, and I haven't given it a single thought. Well, and I, I think that's the thing. Well, in general, I, maybe we have things up our sleeves. Like, I often have thoughts of this movie we've got to do on Matinee Minutia someday. But we really, I don't think we really plan too far ahead. Uh DJ, what what do you think about that? Do, do we, or am I goofing this up, or what? No, that's that's the terrific part of the chemistry between us. Is that it's sort of like a potluck. We each bring something to the table, and who knows if it goes together. But um, the fourth season, our season premiere for Matinee Minutia, will be Friday, September seventeenth. We're normally the first and third Friday of the month, but we're we're on a little break. See here, as Toppy just said. So we'll be back on the 17th of September, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and propose that maybe this season you might, more than years past, uh, see at least a couple of TV movies. That's sort of the the sweet spot. We we specialize in film or television, but every once in a while the twain shall meet, and and you'll get an actor in their twilight possibly doing a cameo. Oh. All right, that sounds intriguing. I, I'm intrigued, and, and and I'm part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you do do decide to cover Made in Italy, then I'll, uh, invite me invite me on. I'm happy to talk about it because I I uh, have watched that very recently, and uh, I do think it fits with your uh, with the type right. of films that uh, and even one that would be great for a watch party. But it, I don't know; it may be too new to be available for that sort of thing. I'm not sure. Well, we but, do have reserved seating for our past guests, so feel free to drop by the uh, the marionette because your seat's waiting for you. Yay. Yeah, and we should mention we do this live every first and third uh, Friday of the month, and we've got a chat room, and uh, you can participate by volunteering information that you might know about the movie or asking questions or just chit-chatting with the other people in the guest room so it's a live it's a live thing uh that we do and we stream it and uh there you go and sometimes there's costumes (laughs) Uh, dj's good with the uh, costumes and uh, i like to hide my face so well, guys, thank you very much. Um, well, we've done it again, three seasons, and uh, we, we got to review the whole thing. So Yeah, uh, uh, Paul, Paul, for the third time, it seems to me uh, that uh, we've, we've run awful long uh, because I've blabbed my face off. Well, we've, talked about, we've talked about how many podcasts cover 20 films. In, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and also, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a nice teaser for people to go and then go and uh, listen to your full episode. Well, follow the nice. new show. Very nice of you. Thank you. And uh, well, uh, I'll say goodbye for now, and I'm sure I'll be speaking to you before we review season four. But uh, keep up the good work, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll speak again soon. And uh, yeah, good, goodbye, guys. Goodbye, listeners, and uh, uh, we'll see you again soon. Bye, Yeti. No attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs>
Um, so, uh, you know what we're like in the Charlotte podcast. We we can't just go. We have to come back a little bit. So, yeah. is there anything you didn't get to say about Sky Captain Network oh. or Electric Dreams before we oh, I, I'll, I'll just say a word or two about Sky Captain. Uh, fun. Uh, if you like uh, what Martin does on that there Spatial Soldiers podcast where he features old serials, that's what uh, this here uh, Sky Captain is. It's an homage uh, to those old serials, and it, it, there's nothing real in it. Not one single piece of footage has any basis in reality at all. It's all CGI. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, they do it quite well. And uh, it, it just it just harkens back to a different era of filmmaking. Sky Captain uh, was a little bit of nostalgia wrapped in the reality of today. Just like the title implies, The World of Tomorrow... It reminded me of our adventure when we discussed the 1980 Flash Gordon movie, which, of course, was based on the original serials. But, yeah. uh, you know, you had some eye candy in Sky Captain, and you had some people at the beginnings of their careers. Gwyneth Paltrow is in it before she got to be Pepper Potts. So she's uh, trying to get through her lines in perhaps a Marilyn Monroe-inspired dress. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have a character that only has brief moments on screen, but Angelina Jolie's British officer in this series, this film, could have easily gotten her own series, and I would sign that petition now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny to think, because Jude Law, like only 10 years before this film was being made, maybe slightly more than 10 years, he was just on some very people soap opera, which got axed. He really? Come, come I didn't along, know come that. along. Yeah, he started on a early '90s soap called Families, but yeah. which oh, was, his, was his job to sit around with his shirt open? <laughs> uh, quite possibly. I don't think I. I did watch Families, but I think he left for the time I. Yeah, for the time <laughs> I watched, funny. but. Uh, uh, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a fun movie with. This wonderfully limited color palette—it's—it's it's all. I don't know. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's just when you look at how they made this movie, it's something. It's something to behold. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. Oh dear, <laughs> what's going on now? Oh, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Let's go. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net. I probably ought to watch Network because it's one of those films that are, is that is famous and uh, of those of those three that um, it's probably the, the one that uh, um, people would say, oh yes, you need to see that.
I, I watch Network primarily for the female lead, and I'm forgetting her name, but I... Faye, Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway, yes. I mean, I, I'm i the one who... Well, I, and Toppy confessed this during our discussion on, on Network, but I'm the one who watched Supergirl because I liked the evil witch that Faye Dunaway played in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Faye Dunaway had this particular era in filmmaking where she was just in one smash hit after another. And then whammo after Mommy Dearest, she <laughs> hit a wall like you wouldn't believe. But anyways, uh, it's really her movie. Uh, by that I mean it's her character that is so compelling uh, and brings the story around her her driven nature uh, and also just how vapid she is because she works in the TV industry and it's all about ratings anyways it, fascinating movie it's, it's uh, going back to that Sybil Shepherd autobiography. She mentions the films that she she went for and uh, didn't get, um, and who got them. You know the roles that she went for and and which famous. She had quite a lot of competition with, you know, and there were things that she got that 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 people like Faye Dunaway probably didn't get. So uh, it, it's it's so interesting. Um, it's interesting. I I could see I could see Sybil Shepherd. In the role that Faye Dunaway has, I, I think, you know, she could have done. I think she could have done that movie too. Faye Dunaway is is great in it, but but I could see Sybil Shepherd achieving uh, similar results. Um, of of these three films, Electric mm-hmm. Dreams, I think definitely worked well for a uh, a, a watch party because it's it was just fun and silly and um, and and. Uh, uh, yeah, as I say, I knew the music from it more than I knew the film. But <laughs> yeah, I felt that Electric Dreams was a great summer send-off because at yes. the end of the film, this couple who's just very happily in their early days, they're they're crossing the Golden Gate Bridge and they've sworn off all technology for the next two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun movie to end with. Uh, it just a, a little trifle of a movie. Uh, very, 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 very much uh, of its time and place. And when you get a load of uh, what, you know, the the burgeoning Internet was at the time and where they thought it might go and what could happen. Anyways, it's it's all very fanciful, uh, but fun. That was a whopper.
Is the show over with yet? <laughs>